Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we are kicking off a two-part series on some of the ancient empires that once ruled various parts of the African continent. Now, listeners, we hardly need to tell you that history is very long and Africa is very big. So this will be by no means a complete tour. So we're just going to hit a few of these ancient kingdoms, empires, chiefdoms, polities, you know, um, going from region to region. We'll start this week at the earlier end of the timeline and focus on pre-classical civilizations. Next week, we'll tackle some of the later empires. This series also ties in with our episode a few months back about the Swahili coast and the medieval kingdom of Kilwa, so if you haven't listened to that one yet or you want to revisit it, it will make a good companion to these episodes. So, Amber, how about you start us off in North Africa? Uh, Love North Africa. So, first up, (laughs) something else I love. Uh, (laughs) Hey. Hey. First up, we have... Kush. Kush was a kingdom in northern Africa in the region roughly corresponding to modern-day Sudan, or as one says in Arabic, as Sudan. (laughs) Um, The larger region around Kush, which is later referred to Nubia, was inhabited around 8000 BCE, but the kingdom of Kush arose much later. Archaeological evidence from Sudan and Egypt shows that the Egyptians and the people of Kush region were in contact from the early dynastic period in Egypt, which is around eh, 3150 to 2613 BCE, um, and from that point onwards. The later civilization defined as Kushite probably evolved from this earlier culture, but was heavily influenced by the Egyptians. The kingdom of Kush really hit its its golden years and and flourished between around 1069 BC and 350 CE. Um, that starting point corresponds with the final stages of decline of the new kingdom of Egypt, which had run from around 1570 to 1069 BCE. Um, and that decline is part of what empowered the Kushite city-state of Napata. Um, There had been ongoing conflict between Egypt and Kush for a long time, but with Egypt more or less imploding politically, the Kushites no longer had to worry about incursions into their territory. Kush became the power in the region while Egypt floundered. Um, The region was known by the Egyptians as Taseti, the land of the bow, Uh, in reference to skilled Kushite archers. By the time the the old kingdom of Egypt, which was around 2613 to 2181 BCE. And the northern area, which was what bordered Egypt, was known as Wawat. Wawat! Which is the sound of a double take. So, okay. So when the Kushite incursion would come, they like also had a retinue of like hype men that would just be like, where are we from? (laughs) Wawat! (laughs) So, are we cool yet? Hello, hello, youth. <laughs> hello, We're doing this right. Hello, fellow kids. Um, I'm drinking this <laughs> seltzer. <laughs> um, what Kush was called by its inhabitants at this time is unclear um, because we don't have records of them referring to themselves. Um, so perhaps it was always known as Kush or some variant thereof, since Egyptian inscriptions also refer to it as Kus, Kas, and Kash. The designation Kush seems to be indigenous, while the later name for the same region, Nubia, most likely came from the Egyptians to the north. Um, The region of Kush was the main source of gold for the Egyptians, and it's thought that Nubia derived from the Egyptian word for gold, nub. 
Um, <laughs> there's another theory, however, which claims that Nubia derives from the people known as the Noba or the Nuba who settled there. The Egyptians also knew the land as the land of the black people. Um, Greek and Roman writers referred to the region as Ethiopia, which you may have heard of. Um, yeah, the familiar land, with it. The land of the burnt-faced persons, which... Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it sounds refer- rough now. Yeah, in reference to um, the indigenous people's black skin, and the Arab tribes knew it as Bilida Sudan, land of the blacks. Um, it should be noted, however, that these designations, designations may or may not have been referencing the whole region. Right. And who knows exactly which parts they were referencing and also yikes. So speaking of Ethiopia. Yes. Let's talk about East Africa and I'm going to punt it over to you. Oh, I see what you did there because now we are talking about the land of punt. Amber's doing finger guns. Deservedly. That was very good. Excellent. Let me just hop off my segue and get going. (laughs) Um, Okay, so the land of Punt was a trading partner of ancient Egypt, which means that delegations from Punt are depicted in Egyptian relief carvings and paintings. Punt was known for producing and exporting gold, aromatic resins, blackwood, ebony, ivory, and wild animals. The region is known from ancient Egyptian records of trade expeditions. That said, uh, we don't actually know exactly where Punt was. I will I will get more into that um, at the end of this segment. But um, historically, Punt might correspond to a place called Opone by the ancient Greeks, while some biblical scholars have identified it with the biblical land of Put or Havila. At times, Punt is referred to as the, quote, land of the god, but the ancient Egyptians weren't a whole lot more forthcoming than that, so I'm sure it made sense to them at the time. The exact location of Punt is still debated by historians. Most scholars today believe that Punt was situated to the southeast of Egypt, most likely in the coastal region of modern Djibouti, Somalia, northeast Ethiopia, Eritrea, and the Red Sea coastal area of Sudan. Um, it's also possible that the territory covered both the Horn of Africa and Southern Arabia. More on that in a second. So we'll get more. Yeah, we'll get more into the science of that momentarily. Also, um, but first, also you froze yeah. up for a minute, and yeah, I saw it totally. I, I know, but I was gonna make a really great U two joke We're talking about uh-huh. land of the god, and I like, I probably would have gotten it. <laughs> <laughs> You need to have, you know, your other podcast with someone who listens to cool music. (laughs) Oh, my God. Of the past 40 years (laughs) and today. Yes. Okay, go on. I listen to music of the past 40 years and today, just not cool music, I guess. (laughs) So I want to take a little sidestep here to talk about... Uh, Etty, a figure who is known as the Queen of Punt, although we actually don't really know exactly what her function was. So this all begins with <laughs> she's, your friend and she's mine. She's like a conjunction in that way. Yeah. Oh. Uh, this all begins with the Egyptian pharaoh Hatshepsut, who was female, but definitely not a queen, as Amber has mentioned on the podcast before. Hatshepsut was a pharaoh. And she definitely deserves her own episode someday. In any case, as the story goes, Hatshepsut received an oracle from the god Amun-Re, her putative father, according to sort of her own cosmology, who had made her pharaoh of Upper and Lower Egypt. So here's what Goddad had to say. Quote from Goddad, Explore the route to Punt, open the road to the Mer Terraces, and lead an expedition on water and on land to bring exotic goods from the gods' lands to this god who created your beauty. So, like, Amun Ray was just like, bring me presents. <laughs> the oracle did stipulate over land and over sea. Uh, now, the Egyptians were not good sea sailors. Cruising up and down the Nile was no problem, but their flat-bottom boats were not great for open ocean. So and now flat-bottom they- boats did not make the mm. rock and roll go mm. round. Mm. I listened to Queen. That one I got. Flat-bottom boats. Okay. 
so navigating the dangerous waters of the Red Sea to the very edge of the town. What? Sorry, it's the town. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Navigating the dangerous waters of the Red Sea to the very edge of the known world must have been daunting. Myrrh apparently made it worthwhile. It was not just a sweet-smelling perfume, though it was that too. Hatshepsut reportedly rubbed it on her legs to impart a divine fragrance. But uh, myrrh was also an incense that was essential to the proper worship of gods and for the afterlife. So um, myrrh is the resin of the Comifera myrrha tree, and it was burned in vast quantities during daily temple rituals in ancient Egypt and used in embalming the bodies of pharaohs and for mummification of, you know, not royal folk also. Um, as early as the 5th dynasty, a single expedition had brought back to Egypt no less than 80,000 measures of myrrh. I do not know how much myrrh is in a measure, but 80,000 of anything is a lot. So, a lot of myrrh. Besides having orders to import the desired incense from Punt, the expedition also, and this was Hatshepsut's innovation, was to collect complete trees and bring them back to Egypt as well. These would then, this was the plan, be cultivated in the temples of Amun at Thebes. At Hatshepsut's tomb, uh, which is now called Deir al-Bahri, um, on the right and left sides of the ramp leading to the middle terrace, of that complex stumps of trees were found around artificial water basins. And those are thought to be the remnants of those myrrh trees that were brought from punt. Um, they didn't, they didn't do so well. So this yeah. expedition went off commanded by a high official, um, a state treasurer named Nehez, maybe Nehez. Sure. He sailed with five ships, each with around 150 sailors and soldiers, and they probably spent a month at sea before they sighted the shores of Punt, which made it possible for Hatshepsut to boast in an, in an inscription, my southern boundary is as far as the lands of Punt. So this expedition is depicted in a large relief at Deir al-Bahri. Well, it, the relief is now in the Cairo Museum, but it shows, among many, many other things, two characters that I want to pay particular attention to. The first is a woman, Eddie, often referred to as Queen of Punt. The second is a baboon. <laughs> so Eddie is depicted with some remarkable physical characteristics, and modern physicians have tried to determine what's going on with her. They've been unsuccessful to the extent that Eddie has her own pathology named for her Queen of Punt Syndrome. Wow. Yeah. Here is an excerpt from the Journal of European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology what? in a volume from 2005. I know, it's all the things. Um, okay, so here's the quote. Queen of Punt shows rugged face, gluteal and femoral obesity, hyperlordosis, and symmetrical deposits of fat on the trunk, limbs, and thighs. Bioanthropological and medical geneticists... Okay, this is written by someone whose first language was not English, so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Bioanthropological and medical geneticists have studied the Queen of Punt to a great extent, and she died nearly 34 centuries ago. Um, and they've tried to come up with a precise diagnosis, but there's no mummy or, or remains of, of Eti, so those can't be analyzed. Um, and so... Moreover, the clinical picture seems to be uh, a single physical manifestation of several pathologies. So we don't really know uh, why Eddie is depicted the way that she is. To some extent, it may be um, sort of an othering yeah. move, it's depicting her as as very different. Um, because, but she is depicted. She is she. So she's shown as um, something that is like she's sort of like a like an inversion of what Hatshepsut is because Hatshepsut is um you know Amun-Re gave her beauty but also she is a pharaoh and she is like powerful and masterful and powerful. And, yeah. and then like you when you go to the edges of the world things get weird and they go sideways and then you've got this like according to the Egyptians. right right uh also, the world doesn't have an edge, uh, but yeah. <laughs> just doing our part there. Um, and so you have you would represent. So if if Etty is a it was a queen of a place called Punt, she could be just a, a very like able bodied, average looking person. But the representation right, but she's depicted yeah, as, yeah. may have absolutely no um 
relationship with reality whatsoever other than like she's so unlike us it's crazy it's sort of uh, (laughs) yeah yeah so it could be visual shorthand for something like that or it could be a more or less true to life representation of someone with some sort yeah. of um some sort of different organization of their body type right so yeah. it's yeah or but, you know some kind of pathology going on it's really hard to tell but also so, baboon yeah so uh let's leave the mystery of of eddie of punt and uh go on to a baboon who may have helped solve the mystery oh so Oh, little detective baboon. Nope. Um, so on that same relief from Hatshepsut's tomb, there's a carving of a boat bringing tribute to Egypt from Punt. On that boat are depicted three baboons uh, squatting in their characteristic sort of upright position. So it's, I mean, you can tell from their, the, the way they look, the faces and stuff that they are baboons, but they're also, it's really cool that they're depicted in a lifelike way. Like clearly whoever was, doing this relief had seen baboons which is neat um a lot of baboons were likely brought to egypt in this way when the egyptians observed baboons barking at the rising sun they imagined that they were worshiping the sun just as people did which that's not true they're just warming up their little baboon chests they have this special patch on their chest that doesn't have a lot of fur on it and so they need to, they use it to warm themselves up in the morning when the sun's coming up. They like face the sun and put their chests up to the sun and they'll also like make noises and you know communicate because they're social animals. They communicate and they bark at each other and so this was interpreted as barking at the sun and sort of praying to it in the same way that people do. Uh you know they're just warming up their little baboon chests. So because of that, the baboon became an aspect of the sun god Amun-Re, and whole colonies of baboons were kept in his temples. Unfortunately, baboons aren't used to the Egyptian climate, and they typically didn't live long. So when they died, they were mummified. So, isotope analysis of hair from some of these baboon mummies was published in 2010. Oxygen isotope signatures can tell us about where an individual spent the last few months of their life. And on two baboons that died shortly after arriving in Egypt, the isotope results show that they were from an area that includes modern-day Eritrea and eastern Ethiopia. So that might have been punt. So baboons, solving mysteries. Aw. Sort of. I know. What's up next? So we got Oxum. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're heading to modern-day Eritrea and Ethiopia for Aksum. Mm -hmm. So, the kingdom of Aksum, also known as the kingdom of Aksum, with an X, um, or the Aksumite Empire, was located in what is today the Tigray region in northern Ethiopia and Eritrea. So, Aksumite emperors were powerful sovereigns, and they styled themselves as... um, Kings of Kings, King of Axon, Hinyar, Radon, Saba, Salhin, Siamo, Beja, and of Kush. Remember Kush? Same, same Kush. Same, same Kush? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So these are sort of city states. So it's not totally dissimilar to when we were talking about the uh, Sumerian kings list, where you've got right. polities that are sort of their own place, but also ruled more generally it's very complicated like but this is not a podcast about ancient government states. <laughs> um i'm into it i don't know about this pig you just heard, heard snorting into the- <laughs> um, so this this region existed as the axumite empire from approximately 100 ce to 940 ce so this so we're heading that's not so We're bad. We're heading into the less ancient past. For now. Yeah, yes. Right. Um, so Axum became a major player on the commercial route between the Roman Empire and ancient India. Um, the Axumite rulers facilitated trade by minting their own Axumite currency and with the state establishing its hegemony over the declining, declining kingdom of Kush. So hegemony. they got in there and they're like, oh, oh, got it, got it. Gonna keep keep carrying the standard. Yep. Thank you. We will mm-hmm. rule you now. Um, it also regularly entered the politics of the kingdoms on the Arabian Peninsula and eventually extended its rule over the region with the conquest of the Himyarite kingdom. So um Himyar and Saba 
are both in the Arabian Peninsula. So you have to think about, so this is something that one needs to think about. Um, In the past, geography was carved up differently. And so while um, our listeners may think about there being the Red Sea dividing the Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa, and those are different places, it wasn't conceptualized that way. And so it could be the same place. So the same, mm-hmm. so one p- place could be separated by water, but, and, but still identified as the same place, just with a large body of water in the middle of it. Right. You have to sort of ignore existing boundaries. Yeah. Um, thinking about like a map of what this looked like. You can't think of it as Africa and then separately the Arabian Peninsula. Yeah. It's, these were different, different polities that overlapped those land masses in different ways. Yeah. And they had a lot of similarities, like uh, among them, even like partially because of, um, uh, and which like because of, despite and through like the sort of conquest that came and went around it. Um, so the Aksumites erected monumental stelae, um, which served a purpose in pre-Christian times. Um, and so one of these granite columns is the, so a, a stela is a carved stone object, which usually has an image mm-hmm. and some writing on it about the image. Yeah, I think Rosetta stone. Yeah. 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 Um, so one of these granite columns is the largest such structure in the world coming in at around 90 feet. Um, so we said pre-Christian which was up until around 320, 360 um, CE, um, Axum adopted Christianity. And then in the 7th century CE, early Muslims from Mecca sought refuge from the Quraysh persecution um, by traveling to the kingdom, um, which I mentioned this in... In the Kilwa episode, In the Kilwa episode, yeah. So this was a journey known in Islamic history as the first Hijra. So... um, the prophet Muhammad and his followers were like, were like preaching this message and the local rulers and stuff were like, whoa, like you're like, you're shaking too much stuff up. You're in here telling our like oppressed workforce that they're human beings. Like you're really, you're like not, not down with like us. Like you're salting our game. Yeah, you're salting like our like Yuck, yucking our yums. Yeah, <laughs> right. If you and and their yums <laughs> happen to be like grift oppressing. People. Yeah. yeah. So so they <laughs> so they they left on the first hijra, um, and so they there were sympathetic um, city states over in on um, northeastern Africa who either converted at that point or who had converted and they're like no we, we we're picking up what you're putting down come here hang out and then um later they went back to mecca in medina um and that's a separate but that's another story separate podcast yeah. episode so <laughs> the <laughs> capital of the axumite kingdom place called axum maybe eh? hey um a is now a town in Tigray region, which is in northern Ethiopia. Uh, the kingdom used the name Ethiopia as early as the 4th century. Tradition claims Axum as the alleged resting place of the Ark of the Covenant and the purported home of the Queen of Sheba. And so, two, two, I dropped two big things there. So, the alleged resting place of the Ark of the Covenant, um, I think this is... Um, I think that there is a specific church that mm. is thought to have to be the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant, um, which has not been produced for examination. But there it's no. so it's it's sort of um, you'd think we would have heard about it if it had. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's thought that that's that's where it ended up. Um, okay. And it with respect to this being the purported home of the Queen of Sheba, um, it's. Uh, we're getting back to that idea of the Arabian Peninsula and Eastern Africa being the same place. Um, so the the Queen of Sheba is um, doesn't have a name. Like so, the Queen of Sheba as is known in like 
conventional like public consciousness, I suppose, um, comes from just as Sheba comma queen of. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the idea of this like sexy, mysterious lady, um, that comes from some like, like from those like big biblical movies in the fifties and stuff. So that's how she sort of emerged like oh, American yeah, consciousness. Okay. Um, but okay. there, she appears in the first book of Kings in the old Testament. I don't do a lot of thinking biblically, but um, biblical thinking. Um, so in <laughs> that's the, my, that's my other podcast. The, oh, great. Um, the first book of Kings, a queen of a place called Sheba shows up. Um, and she comes with like camels and gold and spices and incense and stuff. And she's like, wow, that's how you win them over. Yeah, and so winning hearts and is, minds with camels. This is a, um, well, we're going to win it over some hearts and minds with camels in a few minutes. Um, yes, I hope so. And, <laughs> um, so she shows up in, this is sort of a formula in, royal annals um where it's like a demonstration of influence and power where you'll have somebody come from some other place being like i heard this place was pretty sweet and it turns out it is here's some stuff thank you please don't conquer me and you're like oh cool i won't conquer you thank you for the stuff and then they like (laughs) pose for photos and then they leave and so this is one of those moments but they they pose for relief yeah 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 (laughs) everyone hold still and like the handshake and then they leave so this sort of dull anecdote about a queen yeah, showing up and being like, this is amazing. And him being like, yeah, you got any questions for me? And then there's like a whole passage of like Solomon, <laughs> like, like mansplaining nah, things camels. to Sheba. Yeah. And and yep. she's like, ah. Oh. So this is captivating because you don't have a lot of female rulers in the Old Testament. And so this is something no. that queens are associated with. Um Queens are also associated with, like, otherness, the way that, like, the Queen of Punt was. Um, so, like... It's like a lady? Yeah, like a Ruling lady. things? Yeah, a lady with power. What? Uh, with explicit, like, sanctioned, like, divinely appointed power. What? Um, <laughs> yeah, like, even Hatshepsut was a pharaoh. She wasn't a queen. Because, yeah. like, queens do their... No, she had to put the... No, no, no. She, she had, had to the, put the beard on. Yeah, she had the beard. Um, yep. But, so... Sheba, uh, the queen of Sheba, who has a name in the Quran, her name is uh, Bilkis, um, mm-hmm. is thought to be, like generally thought to be from what is now Yemen um, mm-hmm. and from from Saba. So when we had, so Saba was one of the. Saba being Sheba. Yeah. Saba was one of the places, one of the regions that was um, subsumed under the the Aksumite empire. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, she could be from there. Sure. Because it's sort of like, it's, you know, like somebody you can, well, it's like how we've talked a lot about um, people who are called Persian but they were right, probably but, from um, what is now Uzbekistan or or any number of places because at the time it was Persia. That was the so empire. We yeah. may, so what, somebody might think of them as being like Iranian, but that's not at all what it is because like right place names change yeah. and boundaries change. Yeah, and like identities change. Um, yeah, and so there is a there is a site in near Marib in. Uh, what is today Yemen called Mahram Bilkis, which is uh, known as like the like sanctuary of of Bilkis, and so we'll talk about that. We'll have a, a whole episode on like Saba and what's going on in mm-hmm. um, Yemen um, in the past. And but this is <laughs> what's but also going on you in have Yemen in the past. That's the title. And so you have references uh, to Arab queens elsewhere. Like you see this Mm -hmm. in um, reliefs. Like there's a relief of Tiglath-Pileser III. Um, So like Mm Neo-Assyrian reliefs where they have queens Mm -hmm. because like these like these Arab tribes out here are like wilding out. They've got like they got queens. They got camels. They got tents. What? And so it's something that has... um, there is evidence that there actually were female rulers um, 
or like leaders in in these communities, but it's something that could have existed and may not have been the rule or the standard, but it's something that um, people who are representing them and talking about them want to like pick on and be like, Whoa. Yeah, so it's it's something. It, Can you believe? Yeah, so it's something that may be exaggerated to show like how they're different yeah. than they are. So yeah, yeah. So the Queen of Sheba got to make that Bible pop. Yeah, yeah. The Queen of Sheba could have could be from Oxum, but that doesn't mean that she was Ethiopian. Um, no, but I it also did, doesn't don't know. mean that she was Yemeni. Um, it doesn't mean that she's real. Yeah, but let's. Go west. Go west to West Africa. Uh, and the knock culture. Don't knock it till you try it. Um, knock, knock. So the knock. Who's there? The knock culture in the Iron Age. The knock culture in the Iron Age who? Oh, my God. No, no, you're. Follow through, Zambelli. <laughs> it's an early Iron Age population. <laughs> it is okay. let's talk about them so uh they are in fact an early iron age population whose material remains are named after the village of Nok in nigeria where their famous terracotta sculptures were first mm, discovered mm, in 1928 so the Nok culture so it's a type site mm-hmm. so Nok yes, is, is a type site okay mm-hmm. it's the type site for this set of cultural material but uh, it's more than that too. So, um, the knock culture, that, that particular, um, culture typology appeared in Northern Nigeria around 1500 BCE and vanished under unknown circumstances around 500 CE. So it was around for about 2000 years. One, uh, excavation site revealed something that archeologists had not expected. Iron furnaces. You, they did not expect it. They did not expect it at all. They found 13 of these furnaces, and the terracotta figurines were in such close association, both inside the furnaces and around them, that archaeologists interpreted those terracottas as objects of worship to aid in blacksmithing and smelting. Carbon dating of charcoal inside the furnaces revealed dates as far back as 280 BCE, giving Nock the earliest dates for iron smelting in sub-Saharan Africa up to that time. The high number of smelters and quantity of terracottas suggested a dense, settled population. So the function of these knock terracotta sculptures is still unknown, and we will we will include some pictures of them on our social media because they're really cool looking. But um, there aren't a lot of complete ones. For the most part, the terracotta is preserved in the form of scattered fragments. So that's why knock art is well known today only for the heads, then both male and female uh visages are depicted whose hairstyles are particularly detailed and refined the statues are in fragments because the discoveries are usually made from alluvial mud in terrain made by the erosion of water so alluvium is when um water uh rainwater causes you know like uh erosion erosion of hillsides um basically when it rains Mud rolls downhill, and so that is alluvium. The terracotta statues found there are hidden, rolled, polished, and often broken. Rarely are works of great size conserved intact, making them highly valued on the international art market, which is not super great. Um, But these are very cool. They are hollow figures, coil-built, so meaning that they weren't made on any sort of pottery wheel. They were built by adding coils of clay coil on coil on coil. Um, and they're nearly life-size human heads and bodies that are depicted with highly stylized features, abundant jewelry, and various postures. Little is known of the original function of the pieces, but theories include ancestor portrayal, grave markers, and charms to prevent crop failure, infertility, or illness. Also, based on the dome-shaped bases found on several figures, they could have been used as finials for the roofs of ancient structures. It, it wasn't until the 21st oh, cool. century that sustained systematic research was carried out on knot culture, and the results have been stunning. <laughs> the most recent finds, dated by but this thermoluminescence is like, This is very clickbaity. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, <laughs> she, she carried out sustained systematic research on the knot culture, and the results were stunning. The results will shock you. Image three blew my mind. 
Share well, and subscribe. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, so the most recent finds dated by thermoluminescence testing and radiocarbon dating indicate that knot culture lasted from around 1200 BCE to 400 CE, yet we, we know almost nothing about it. We don't know uh, who the originators of this material culture were, okay. and we don't know what happened to it. But them. also, like, so we don't know what happened to it. The We're talking about a ceramic assemblage. Yeah, and we so, don't know what happened to the people who were making those well, things. But like, did the ceramics change? Did they just? I don't like, know. I wasn't. No, I'm just saying. Like, as we've as we have discussed before, yeah, it's never a collapse. It's never a collapse. So like, something like went different. They like didn't all catch like the flu and die no they didn't all like drop dead no no it just either they started doing something different or that population left for some reason or this culture became subsumed by another culture could it be i i could it be beings no it's absolutely not spider beings get out of here with your spider beings the sheer volume as well as the artistic and technical skills seen in the terracotta sculptures suggest that not culture was a complex society this is further supported by the existence of those 13 and more iron furnaces. And, you know, ironworking, you have to know how to do it correctly. You have to be able to do multiple steps, including identifying what iron ore is, uh, smelting the iron out of the ore, and then working the iron however you're going to work it. So it, it's something that not only needs um, a somewhat at least sedentary population, it's something that requires special, specialized work. Not only that, archaeological digs have shown that the Nock had sedentary farming. Um, some experts have argued that the uniformity of those terracotta figures, um, suggesting a single source for the clay used to make them, is evidence of a centralized state, but meh, because it could also be evidence of uh, some sort of guild structure that's in charge of sourcing and making the, that pottery. Um Guilds imply some sort of hierarchical society, like a, a segmented society where there are specialists and then there are people who do everyday tasks, but not necessarily a, an, a hierarchically organized state. Yeah. Right. We can't make that assumption. But the, um, but, but it, it's really neat. Yeah. And and also the idea, like the presence of specialized work, like iron, like wrought iron stuff and yeah. and like uniform, attractive like ceramics um, means that like if you are like putting in your 10,000 hours to be an expert at this, that means that somebody else is the one who's like growing food or like taking yeah. care of the kids. And so you have, like, yeah, it's a division of, yeah. Labor. And so that is, that is something that as like many communes in the sixties and seventies, like realized is hard like to actually. So <laughs> like when we talk about complex societies we're not talking about how like they were like more capable or like smarter or even no, like no, or no, even no. like life is like they like need to go on mindfulness retreats because like life is like too complex they're just like that's not no, we're talking no that's not what that means <laughs> no, we're talking about how um you have a society that has like part that uh, where people People aren't doing everything for themselves in like a subsistence way. Like they're do like they're able to divide up resources and labor in such a way that um, segments of the population can get really good at what they do. Um, right. So that's very cool. Yes, it is. And I knew nothing about the knot culture, yeah. which is why I love doing episodes like this that are so far beyond my wheelhouse, where I'm just like reading all these things going, what? Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so speaking of what? Cool. Um, let's go to Ghana. <laughs> I'm Ghana. Mm. So for most of... I'm gonna oh, go. Geez. Okay. For most of central sub-Saharan Africa, um, agricultural expansion marked the period before 500 CE. Farming. Yeah. Um, so farming and agriculture began earliest on the southern tips of the Sahara, um, give, eventually giving rise to village settlements. Um, also, remember, the climate is different in the past. Yes, the Sahara was not as big or as desolate as it is. Now. Yeah. Um, so toward the end of the classical era, 
Larger regional kingdoms had formed in West Africa, one of which was the Kingdom of Ghana, which is north of what is today the nation of Ghana. (laughs) Um, We're going to find out more about it. Stop. (laughs) I can't. Can't and won't. Um, the Ghana Empire was the the part I didn't know. This is cool. Sorry. I got excited. Go ahead. Uh, (laughs) We found something Anna didn't know. No, there's so much I don't know. But this was like, oh. Yeah. So the Ghana Empire, which um, ran from around 700 CE until around 1240 CE, um, is actually properly known as Wagadu. Wagadu. Ghana or Ghana was the title of its ruler. So Ghana is a title, not a place. Um, It's like having a a country named like King. President. Greetings from (laughs) sunny president. Um, (laughs) So complex societies, eh, complex societies again, based on trans-Saharan trade with salt and gold had existed in the region of modern day Ghana and Mali since well before that uh but the introduction yes. of the camel to the western sahara in the third century ce opened the way to great changes in the area that became the ghana empire by the time of the muslim conquest of north africa in the seventh century the camel had changed the ancient more irregular trade routes into a trade network running from morocco to the niger river The Ghana Empire grew rich from this increased trans-Saharan trade in gold and salt, allowing for larger urban centers to develop. The traffic furthermore encouraged territorial expansion to gain control over different trade routes. And can you tell me about camels? This is something that camels are so good for. So are are there many other things that they're good for? Well, they're as, oh my God. Companionship, love. Emmer's a real camelophile. So it's that thing. It's like everybody, I said I liked them once and people keep giving them to me. So now I'm that person. But the thing about camels is um, they are total game changers in every region that they're to which they're introduced because they are able to, um, they're able to go to go far and live and like survive and thrive in um sub prime mortgage. Yeah, I was like, nope, that's not it. So sub <laughs> suboptimal conditions. So um you have a lot of trade um like when you have like the spice route and like trade so trade in the bronze age and even into the iron age was heavily done as maritime trade. So what you have are ports that are where you stop off for supplies and um and that's where there are taxes levied that's where that's and that's why incense was so expensive when it finally got there because you had to you had all the overhead uh right and it went through like six different people who all charged fees and so that jacks up the the price for the consumer and so that's why luxury goods were as expensive as they were and that's something that you see everywhere even today with like things that can be controlled at different waypoints. Um, That was how things got far. Um, Also, you can have, you have more control over where people are going if they're like on a boat and they have to get off that boat at some point to get more food on it. With, With the introduction of camels, like the domestication of camels, which the Bactrian camel was domesticated first, um, that's that two. That's hump. the ones with two humps that are real shaggy. Um, mm-hmm. um, so that uh, ma- that allowed for overland trade to start in Greater Bactria, so in like Central Asia and um, Southwestern Asia. But the dromedary camel is the one that like really was popping off. Um, and when you are doing overland trading, it is much easier to get around things it's much easier to to, like and that so there existed uh and also change who controls the market um and so what right it's not the people who control the ports anymore it's it's, whoever controls important points on the road and so that's where the emergence of caravanserais come from where these are the waypoints and so that's how you start having inland inland empires 
It's a good David Lynch reference for mm. you. Uh, because th- mm. so you have these trade routes that um, completely change the sort of landscape of of like wealth and control and power. And you're also able to get things to new markets. And so establishing these like camel based trade routes, that's how the Silk Road was able to happen. That's how Islam was able to spread east and west of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, That's part of like that helped with like Christianity spreading in some places. Like, and so it's, so the camels, camels, camels. Also, I once tricked a colleague briefly into believing that they were venomous. (laughs) I mean, they, they do spit. And that's what, and that's pretty gross. So it's like there, um, there were, there was a flock of camels, um, that were, Mm that were grazing near us, near our site and they came over and like they were com- like, getting closer and closer to us and my colleague was like oh like do you think we can pet them should i be concerned and i was like no like they're, they're probably fine but like be careful they're venomous and he's like what what and so i <laughs> i think that that's so mean i think that that whole thing of like they spit i think that like was like that registered oh, for is him it, or her like does it was it and so I was just like watching just him like spit? get like freaked out and Process like look over it. his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Um, camels are not venomous. Oh, buddy. They are not. They're for sure not. There's only like two venomous mammals. More we can talk more about that at some other on, on our other other podcast. Are they echidnas and platypodes? Yeah. The platypus is venomous. The slow loris is also venomous. Yeah. Okay. So you know the really adorable videos where they start tickling him and he raises his arms very, very slowly? Yeah. Like that's the cute part, right? They have a venom gland on their the inside of their elbow and they lick it and that's what makes their bite venomous. So when it raises its arms slowly, it's not being cute. It wants to murder you. Yeah. Don't have slow lorises as pets, people. Don't. Are you trying to lick your venom gland? (laughs) What's next? Next, we are going to Central Africa and the Sao civilization. So this civilization flourished in Middle Africa from around the 6th century BCE to as late as the 16th century CE. The Sao lived by the Chari River around Lake Chad in territory that later became part of modern-day Cameroon, which is now the Republique du Cameroon, and Chad. They are the earliest people to have left clear traces of their presence in the territory of modern Cameroon. Sometime around the 16th century, conversion to Islam changed the cultural identity of the former Sao. Today, several ethnic groups of northern Cameroon and southern Chad, but particularly the Sara and Kotoko, claim descent from the civilization of Sao. According to Kotoko tradition, the Sao were a race of giants that used to inhabit the area to the south of Lake Chad between the northern regions of both Nigeria and Cameroon. Um, I also found one source, but it was written in 1989, so I don't know, but it suggested that the Sao were descendants of the Hyksos, people who okay. at one point, um, is that because, uh, what's his face, Herodotus just called everyone Hyksos? No, I don't, I mean, I don't know what's up with this, but, um, the Hyksos period, Hyksos period, and like, the identity of the Hyksos rulers is such a mess. We'll talk about it sometime. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, but tell me more. Whatever. I, I will. <laughs> and I want you to click on this link that we have okay. on the side there. Um, because the the Sao civilization created some very, very cool um figurines slash statues. And I want you to see them because the the style is very neat. And we will also post those on our social media. Um so the term Sao wow. was likely to... Yeah, they're cool, right? Isn't that style? So they're cool. very stylized. So cool. And they're kind of... It sort of reminds me of um, Invader Zim, the cartoon Invader Zim, like the style of it, but that's just me. I don't know. The term Sao was likely to have first been introduced into the written sources during the 16th century CE. In uh, his two chronicles, both of which were written in Arabic, the Book of the Bornu Wars and the Book of the Khanem Wars, the Grand Imam of the Bornu Empire, Ahmad ibn Furtu, described the military expeditions of his king, Idris Aluma. 
Those populations that were conquered and vanquished by Idris Aluma were generally referred to as the Sao, the others who did not speak the Kanuri language. The works of Ibn Firtu also provide some information about the way that the Sao were organized. Apart from evidence suggesting they were structured into patrilineal clans, it is said that the Sao were organized into ranked and centralized societies, thus indicating a hierarchy. These polities were either called chiefdoms or kingdoms, depending on the circumstances. In addition, the Sao were recorded to have dwelt in small towns that were protected by moats and earthen ramparts, so suggesting that maybe they were you know, centralized city-states. When Indris Aluma conducted his military campaigns, the towns of the Sao that were closest to the Bornu heartland were absorbed into the Bornu state. So one possible explanation for the decline, not the collapse, of the Sao may just be through assimilation. Huh! Okay. Boundaries change. Yep. All right. And now... We're gonna. This is our last, our last stop on this week's journey, right? Toot toot. Yep. Okay. Last stop on today's trip is the Mapungubwe or Zimbabwe. So, settlements of Bantu-speaking peoples who were using iron. Okay, never mind. I got I got distracted because I was learning about Bantu languages from my friend who speaks one. And oh, cool. <laughs> At, like that is cool. Yeah. So Ma- Mapungubwe like transitions into Zimbabwe. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um. So Zimbabwe, nay, Mapungubwe. Well, <laughs> it, not quite. But <laughs> um. So settlements of Bantu-speaking peoples who were iron-using agriculturalists, which sounds like a LinkedIn headline, <laughs> um, and herdsmen were present south of the Limpopo River by the fourth or fifth century CE, displacing and absorbing the original. Khoisan speakers. They slowly moved south, and the earliest ironworks in modern-day KwaZulu-Natal province are believed to date from around 1050 CE. The southernmost group was the Xhosa people, whose language incorporates certain linguistic traits from the earlier Khoisan people, uh, reaching the Great Fish River in today's Eastern Cape province. The it should be like Kosa, like it should have that click in front of it, but it's very hard to do for us. But this is, you know, you razzed me when I didn't do the click. So, Kosa. Wow. Okay. Just saying. The kingdom of Mapungubwe was the first state in Southern Africa with its capital at Mapungubwe. Okay. It's convenient. <laughs> yeah. Um, the state arose in the 12th century CE, um, and its wealth came from controlling the trade of ivory from the Limpopo Valley, copper from the mountains of northern of northern Transvaal, and gold from the Zimbabwe Plateau between the Limpopo and Zambezi Rivers with the Swahili merchants at Chwipwene. By the mid-13th century, Mapungubwe was abandoned. Spider beings? It so okay, yeah. Beings. So like Keep when you going. say it, I realize like why you get so mad when I say it because you said it, and I just like felt like a hot flash of rage, and then I was like, okay, this is, I get it. It's not spider beings. Okay. After the decline of Mapungubwe, Great Zimbabwe rose on the Zimbabwe Plateau. Zimbabwe means stone building. Great, yeah. Great Zimbabwe was the first city in southern Africa and was the center of an empire consolidating lesser Shona polities. Stone building was inherited from Mapungubwe. <laughs> no, like the 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 art B- building, of building with, with stone. masonry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mason. There we go. That word <laughs> means the thing. Uh, was inherited from Mapungubwe, uh, and these building techniques were enhanced and came into maturity as if they, they had they had their mitzvah at Great Zimbabwe, <laughs> represented by the wall of the Great Enclosure. The dry stack stone masonry technology was also used to build smaller compounds in the area. And so I'm going to read about Great Zimbabwe from the UNESCO webpage. Yeah, the, the page about Great Zimbabwe yep. from the UNESCO site. The ruins of Great Zimbabwe, the capital of the Queen of Sheba, according to an age-old legend, is, are a unique testimony. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's from everywhere. Yeah, yeah, are a unique testimony to the Bantu civilization of the Shona between the 11th and 15th centuries. The city, which covers an area of nearly 800 hectares, which is about three square miles, was an important trading center and was renowned from the Middle Ages onwards. So, yeah, so... People, I wonder, 
what that age everybody wants a queen of sheba i wonder what that age-old legend about the like how age-old that legend is and who told it because that's another thing of like when you have like characters mentioned in the bible from places that are far off and like show up and are like wow and then you encounter like something very old and very monumental when you're like tootling around and you're like wow this place must have been like great at one point maybe this is where the queen of sheba is from because there's like a fine it's like there could no it's just like who's famous from oldie timies that we could attribute this to yeah and it's a lot of it's in the Bible. Yep. So the property built between 1100 and 1450 CE is divided into three <laughs> groups. Sounds like you're trying to sell it on the real estate you got, market. You got the hill ruins. How many bathrooms though? The great enclosure <laughs> and the valley ruins. The hill ruins, love some ruins forming a huge granite mass atop a spur facing northeast southwest. Great light in the afternoon. <laughs> Yeah, it would be great light in the afternoon. Uh, They were continuously inhabited from the 11th to 15th centuries. um, And there are several layers of that exhibit human settlement. Rough granite blocks uh, form distinct enclosures accessed by narrow, partly covered passageways. Uh, This Acropolis, which Acropolis just means high city. um, Yeah, it's just a... So this hilltop city is generally considered a royal city, um, possibly partially because people likened it to an Acropolis. Um, Yeah, well. I'm just, the the West Enclosure. It's an architectural tautology. Yeah. Mm. The The West Enclosure is thought to have been the residence of successive chiefs and the East Enclosure, where six steatite upright posts topped with beards were found, considered to serve. They're not real. (laughs) These birds aren't real. Um, considered to serve a ritual purpose. It could Which means nobody it knows. It could what also they were just be nice. For. Be like, here's my bird room. Um, yeah. Look at these birds on sticks. <laughs> the great enclosure, uh, which has the form of an ellipsis. An oval. So not in a not like three dots. No, <laughs> so it's an it ellipse. Been an ellipse. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a typo from UNESCO. <laughs> The Great Enclosure, um, which has an elliptical form. Which has the form of a sustained pause. (laughs) It's just awkward. Um, Is located to the south of the hills and dates to the 14th century. Um, It was built of cut granite rocks laid in regular courses and contains a series of Daga Hut living quarters, a community area, and a narrow passage leading to a high conical tower. So Daga, like a Daga Hut is a brick hut. Yes, so, Daga means bricks, yeah. and it's a specific type of right, brick. Right, right, right. Daga, yeah. Uh, yes, so. Brick house. House. Uh, <laughs> the bricks, the Daga, were made from a mixture of granitic slit, sand, and clay. Um, huts were built within the stone enclosure walls. Inside each community area, other walls mark off each family's area, generally comprising a kitchen, two living huts, and a court. Oh, like like a courtyard. Yeah, like nice little single family <laughs> yeah. units. Little two bedroom yeah. apartment. Yeah. Um, the valley ruins are a series of living ensembles scattered throughout the valley, which <laughs> date to the 19th century. Each ensemble has similar characteristics. Many constructions are in brick, and dry stone masonry walls provide insulation for each ensemble. The <laughs> the building work was carried out to what UNESCO is calling a high standard of craftsmanship, which yeah, like, it's just like, excuse you and your standards. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. Like, yeah, they were well built. Sure. Yeah. Burn. Like as if that's yeah. out of the realm of possibility for thousands of yeah. years ago. Um, and shut up. UNESCO. And so they have, uh, they incorporate Chevron and checkered wall decorations. So that's yeah, they cool. got fancy, fancy masonry. Yeah, yeah fancy masonry. Great Zimbabwe flourished by trading with Swahili Kilwa. Remember Kilwa? I do. If you don't remember Kilwa Kiswani, listen to our episode about it. Um, so I might. <laughs> okay. Uh, the rise of Great Zimbabwe parallels the rise of Kilwa. Um, Great Zimbabwe was a major source of gold. Um, gold. It's, it's thought that its royal court lived in luxury, wore Indian cotton, 
and surround themselves with copper and gold ornaments and ate on plates from as far away as Persia and China. It's pretty nice. Pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, to be up there in the hill ruins. Mm, well, they probably weren't ruins at the time. It's probably a, a hill. I don't know. Maybe you know, I don't know. Maybe building. like shabby chic was was a thing then too. Shabby chic, yes, but you know you would like a roof occasionally. Anyway, that's going to do it for us this week. And thank you as always for listening. We'll be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever else you get your pods. You can help us out by leaving reviews and stars at all those places. And you do already. And that's amazing. And I love it. And it warms my heart. Yes. Thank you so much. We do read the reviews and they do warm our little hearts. And and we love hearing from you. Um, You can find us on Facebook, where we also love to hear from you, at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we like hearing from you there, too. And we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And if you want, you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And we're on Patreon. And on Patreon, we put out extra bonus content for you, our Patreon subscribers. You can get access to bonus goodies like banging eps and fun video for as little as a dollar a month over at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Farewell. Auf Wiedersehen. Good night. Ciao. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.